0: Today, we're going to take an in-depth look into why certain treatments fail. I'm Dr. Mark Amos, and this is Talk Go About Fertility Tuesday. Have you ever wondered... Why do fertility treatments fail? Is it because it's the wrong treatment? Is it always that? Today we talk about the reasons for failure in different fertility treatments. Let's start with ovulation induction with timed intercourse. This is a situation where ob OBGYN or fertility doctor gives you a medication like Clomid or Femara. And these medications then make you make an extra egg or two. Now, from a common sense standpoint, this makes a lot of sense. If you make a second egg, why wouldn't you get pregnant more? But in reality, if you've been trying for six months to a year and you haven't got pregnant, there's a good chance that Clomid or Femara with timed intercourse is not going to work. Now, why is that? Well, first, let's think about how easy it is to get pregnant. After three months, most people, 50%, are going to be pregnant. By six months, 70% of people are going to be pregnant. By one year, 85% of people are going to be pregnant. So if you didn't become pregnant after trying for a year, after releasing 12 eggs, why would your body let you get pregnant? Because you released two. You won't. If you think about it, it's not like your body would tell you, listen, I know you've been trying for the last 12 months, and you have released 12 beautiful eggs. I mean, they are amazing eggs. But here's the thing, Jill. I'm not going to let your body get pregnant unless you give me two eggs because I want twins. Now, many of us may want twins being infertile, but the point is that's not the scenario. You are not going to get pregnant by releasing a second egg if you've already released 12 eggs and everybody else after three eggs has become pregnant. So really, unless you have what's called anovulation or oligoovulation, which means not ovulating or ovulating some time, Really, no one should be doing Clomid plus timed intercourse. Now, do people get pregnant? Absolutely. Just like sometimes people jump out of airplanes without parachutes and they live. But it doesn't mean it makes it right. And I would recommend if you're on Clomid or Famara and doing timed intercourse and you've been trying for over a year and you're ovulating, there's no benefit for doing that. However, if you are not ovulating, or ovulating every once in a while, then ovulation induction with timer, of course, is great for you. Now, what if that doesn't work? Well, then at that point, that means it's not the right treatment. Obviously, at that point, there is something else wrong, and you need to undergo either further treatment or testing. Before we go into IUI failures, it's important to understand that I am assuming you have had testing to evaluate things that are obviously a cause for IUIs not working, such as if your tubes are blocked or if your sperm is severely low. In those situations, clearly IUIs, intrauterine insemination, will not work. Additionally, if there is something wrong in your uterus, for example, if you have polyps or fibroids that are inside the cavity, those things would also make both IUIs, IVF, and even timed intercourse, not work due to the poor environment for the embryo to live in. So why do IUIs not work? Honestly, that's a very good question. Other than the obvious things, such as the tubes being blocked, or there being low sperm samples, I can't really tell you why they don't work, because no one really knows because we're really not getting you pregnant. I tell people all the time, intrauterine inseminations are kind of like match.com. We're just getting everything a lot closer to get the party started. But in reality, we're not fertilizing the eggs. We're not guaranteeing the sperm mix to the egg. We're not guaranteeing the embryos making into the uterus. We honestly have no idea if those things even occurred. Again, we're just match.com. Now, One thing that is important to understand is when IUIs don't work, it probably is something to do with the tubes. So even if the tubes are open, it doesn't mean your tubes are actually functional. Just because your sperm is good doesn't mean your sperm is able to get into the egg. One of the areas I think there's a little bit of confusion is the difference between abnormal-shaped sperm, and sperm being able to fertilize. And it's very easy to confuse these two because if you are told you have a low percentage of sperm that are perfectly normal-shaped, then you would be told if you do IVF, you will need to do a thing called ICSI, stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And as I've talked about on a prior podcast, The reason you need to do ICSI, where we inject the sperm into the egg, is not because your sperm is so bad, but really because we cannot filter it as well as the human reproductive tract can. But it's easy to kind of think if my sperm is abnormally shaped, then maybe it won't fertilize. And that's just not true. But there are times where people have a hard time fertilizing eggs. And unfortunately, there is no way for us to know this when doing IUIs. We have to learn this when doing things like IVF. And at that point, that's when we can see if the sperm did not fertilize the egg. I think one subgroup that is very important to recognize when we're talking about IUI failures are couples who use donor sperm. Or single women who use donor sperm. And that's because when using donor sperm, it is very important to make sure the timing is right. So if you're with a doctor who is only doing one ultrasound and they are missing ovulation, that may be why your IUI is not working. Because once the egg has ovulated, it only has 24 hours to be exposed to sperm. Matter of fact, it would be better to put sperm there before you ovulate than to put it back after you ovulate. And if your doctor is not watching things closely and treating this like any IUI cycle, there is the possibility that you will ovulate too soon and the sperm will be there too late and you won't get pregnant. Now, is this a problem for most couples? The answer is no, because if you're having relations, there's a chance sperm is there already, so it's not as much of a risk. But when you're using donor sperm, this is actually extremely important and should be used when picking your doctor in clinic when doing donor sperm IUI. The real discussion tonight is how does IVF fail? I mean, really, when you think about it, It seems like you should get pregnant when you put sperm in the uterus and you're ovulating two or three eggs. I mean, how does that not work? But we really talked about that. That's just match.com. Just putting sperm and egg in the same room. But sometimes they don't tangle. But with IVF, we're taking the eggs out of you. We're fertilizing them. We're making the baby. And we're putting it back inside your uterus And sometimes, it doesn't work. When it comes to IVF failure, there are multiple areas that can fail. One of the first areas when undergoing IVF is the fact that you don't make follicles. This would be the situation where women have elevated FSH levels or have very few antral follicles and don't respond and don't make eggs this is very common in women when they're much more mature now the reason for this is is that when the fsh levels are high what that means is is that your body has to work extra hard to make one egg so when you hear about cycle day 3 labs i always remind people it's not the number you worry about it's what the number represents if you have an elevated FSH level on day three, the concern isn't the number being up. The concern is that you may not respond to medications because if it takes, and we'll make a number up here, 10 egg units to make one egg, and all I can give you is up to 12 egg units of hormone, then you're really not going to make any more eggs. It doesn't matter how many are there. I always liken FSH levels to seeing a fire. If I look out in the distance and I see a building burning, I know that when the smoke is black, the fire is going. And when I see white smoke, I know then the fire is out. Well, if someone went and put a smoke machine in front of the fire before the white smoke showed up and made a bunch of white smoke... I wouldn't be happy. I'd say, well, I don't actually care about the white smoke. I, I care what the white smoke represents. I'm That didn't take the fire out because we don't care about the smoke, right? We only care about the fire being out. The smoke machine doesn't make us feel better because we still see the fire. That is how you have to think of FSH. I get people all the time saying to me, well, I've seen it lower or, or I, I, I bet I can get it lower. But we don't care what the number is. What we care is what the number represents. Just like the black smoke represents the fire and the white smoke represents the fires out, a high FSH level represents that your body is going to have a hard time recruiting eggs. And there are many reasons for this, which we won't go into today, but that is one of the areas you can fail in IVF. There are some people, although extremely rare, that have empty follicle syndrome. I have maybe once or twice in my career ever seen anyone with empty follicle syndrome. To be honest, I think when most people don't get follicles, I mean, I apologize, eggs from the follicles, I think the doctor just didn't get them and blames empty follicle syndrome. The next area that IVF can fail is in either the maturation of the eggs or the fertilization of the eggs. When we're talking about maturation... We're not talking about maturity like you would with a person. Maturation is actually a DNA change that must occur in the egg in order for it to fertilize with the sperm. This is why it's so important to have mature eggs because immature eggs cannot be fertilized. So if your stimulation led to a lot of immature follicles then you will probably get less fertilized follicles. Now, a step further than that, you can have poor fertilization. That is where the sperm don't fertilize in the egg. And this is kind of tricky because we can all understand that if you put sperm on top of the egg, it should fertilize. I mean, it just makes sense. Sperm's there. Why wouldn't you want to go into that party? Seems like a great party. Why would they want to be in there? But the thing is, is that the sperm is not knocking on a door, announcing it's there, but instead it has to undergo a chemical reaction. And sometimes some sperm do not have the ability to go inside the egg cell to fertilize it. See, the thing about sperm you have to understand is sperm is like the pizza delivery guy. No one cares what the pizza guy looks like or the pizza girl. We care what the pizza tastes like. So, sperm is the vector, like the pizza guy, and the DNA is what the pizza is. The problem is there are some pizza guys who can't get to the front door and can't get in. Those are the sperm that can get to the egg, but can't get in. They may have great pizza, but they can't get in the door. Then there are some sperm that get into the egg but they had bad pizza. And so when you're thinking about fertilization, it's more than just sperm and egg and getting together. A lot of things have to happen to have that work, which then takes me to the next point, which is how the hell does ICSI not work sometimes? I mean, you're injecting the sperm right in the egg. It doesn't make any sense. Except if we go back to our pizza guy analogy All that putting the sperm into the egg is doing is getting the pizza guy into the front door. But the pizza may still suck. I mean, that pizza could be made of like broccoli, some other weird things that people put in their pizza, and then no one's going to enjoy that and no one's going to make a baby. So if your sperm is injected inside the egg and you got bad pizza, then you got bad DNA which means they're not going to fertilize. So even injecting the sperm in does not always guarantee fertilization. Now, here's an interesting side note. If you had to choose between ICSI or standard insemination, common sense says, well, I would want to do ICSI. Why would I not want to inject it in? I mean, I want to push that pizza guy right through that door. Well, there's a couple issues with this. First of all, ICSI has a lower fertilization rate than natural insemination. So you're going to have about a 70% fertilization with ICSI, whereas with standard insemination, putting the sperm just in the same room with the egg has about 80 to 90% fertilization. The other issue is nature is better at picking the sperm than humans. And there are some new devices that we use and other people use to pick the best sperm, but it's not perfect. But the real benefit of doing standard insemination when you can is that to do ICSI, you have to clean the eggs off. And when you strip the eggs to get these cells away from them, you can only do ICSI. Now, the problem is if the eggs immature, mature, you're done. You can't wait for the egg to mature. So essentially, you can't fertilize that egg. But if you put the sperm in the dish with the egg, through standard insemination, it has all night the party with those oocytes to make a baby. The next area that can fail in IVF is when you get no blastocyst to make it to the end. And when this happens, the question isn't so much, did the blastocyst not make it, but where did the embryos stall? If your embryo stalls very early, let's say on the second day or third day, then at that point, that's more concerning than if your embryo makes it just before the blastocyst and stops. The thing you have to understand is that in the very early stages of embryo development, not much is going on. It's pretty easy. It's kind of like, hey, why don't you divide? Oh, you divide too. Hey, great. We're all dividing. It just is so easy. But to become a blastocyst, you have to do more. You have to say, well, listen, you're going to be the baby and uh, you're going to be the placenta. And everyone has a job to do now. And now all of a sudden, it takes more coordination. So if there are problems in the DNA, it is possible those embryos won't make it. I always liken embryo culturing to job interviews. When you get the job and you go to orientation, everyone looks great you're like man John is good Sally is great everyone's doing so well on the third day of orientation you're like yeah everyone's still pretty good I mean they're all doing fantastic two weeks later when your guys are doing your job you realize John sucks at his job why because John got more responsibility and now you realize he's not good a day five embryo has more responsibility so when they're stalling at day f- before day five it means whatever's wrong, is causing them not to make it that far, and it's probably something in the DNA. Now, what if your embryos are making the blastocyst, but they're all so poor that you can't transfer them or biopsy them or freeze them? Now, in this situation, the question is, how does that work? I mean, if it makes the blastocyst, shouldn't it be good? Because Dr. Amos just got done saying that we realized John sucks at his job because it's a couple weeks later, and we got to see what he can do when he's with complicated situations, except when you start getting into this situation, I think it's easier to think of this as a blueprint. If you have a stack of hundred pages of a blueprint to build a building, if there's something wrong in the first five pages, which is the foundation of your building, that's going to be the equivalent of having severe chromosomal problems that cause the embryo to stop early. But if you have problems near the end of the book, of the blueprint, you're not going to see those problems on day five. So your embryo will make it there, but it'll be a poor quality. And if you probably tested it, it would come back abnormal because the problem might have not shown up yet, but it will show up eventually. The same reason like John seemed like he was bad. Guess what? Three weeks later, Sally was bad too. You gave her more jobs to do. You found out she can't do those jobs. So sometimes it takes longer to know about other embryos, but since we put the embryos back on day five, we have the information by day five and we can make decisions. This is the same thing as your embryos all coming back abnormal. It's scary. You feel like, do I have normal embryos? And you have to look at this situation specific to you. If you are 25 years old and 90% of your embryos are coming back abnormal, That is definitely abnormal. That is completely unexpected and probably is why you're having issues. However, if you're 44 and 90% of your embryos come back abnormal, that's actually perfectly fine because that's what you would expect. And so when we look at people failing because they get no normal embryos, we have to look at the situation. Now, what if you're 25 and they all came back abnormal? Well, then how many did you have? If you have one embryo, well, that's still possible. The 40% chance that one would come back abnormal. But if you had 10, that's not normal. So I remind people when you flip a quarter, you can get five heads in a row. There's nothing wrong with that quarter. Flip that quarter hundred times. That is not normal to get 100 heads in a row. So the point is, although you can fail because you have no normal embryos, the question you have to ask is, is this appropriate? If you've got 20 embryos and you're 25 and none come back normal, then you may need to reconsider if this is the right treatment for you. If you are 42 years old and you have four embryos and they all come back abnormal, yeah, try again. Why would you not? Another analogy I sometimes use is IVF, when it fails, it's kind of like running a marathon. You can't judge yourself I'd make it to the end of the marathon and not winning at all and saying, well, I'm not going to try again. No one does a marathon and says, man, I made it all the way to the end. I got to 20th place out of 30 people. I'm, I'm done. I'm never doing it again. Of course not. You, you just made it all the way through a marathon, right? But if you're like me, which I can't run the marathon, I'm pretty sure I would fall down in the third mile of the marathon And then if I looked at my wife, I'm like, hey, sweetie, you think I should try this again? She would probably say yes, because she's so sweet. But in reality, she should say, no, you really suck at this. You can't make it past the third mile. You need to quit. Now, does that mean you need to quit when things don't go well? No, but when you're trying to figure out when to stop and you're looking at these failures, you have to ask yourself, is this normal? If you are 25 years old and they keep going bad in the very beginning then that's scary because how are you ever going to make it to the end now at that point obviously you need second opinions you need to try other treatments but in the end that is much more concerning than someone making it to the end and having abnormal embryos that's just try try again now the other areas that you can fail in IVF are two other areas the first one is failure to thaw this is an extremely unlikely cause of failure it can happen but well, it's very, very uncommon now. And that is because we don't freeze embryos like we used to in the past. In the past, we used to use a process called slow freezing, which is a very low, slow rate of freezing until the embryo or eggs were frozen. And the reason we went so slow was to prevent crystallization. This is like when you put a water bottle in the freezer, the water bottle breaks because water expands when it gets cold, when it makes ice. Well, the same thing, your body is made up of mostly water. So is an embryo. So as you freeze it, they'll expand and it will actually kill the cells just like it kills your food when it gets freezer burned. Now we use a process called vitrification and In vitrification, is a very fast freeze, but more important, you are dehydrating the cells and then flash freezing them. And what this creates is a glass-like effect. Glass is actually a liquid, not a solid. So when they become like a glass-like effect, they don't form those crystals like they would in the past. So when you thaw them, they do much better. Additionally, the other reason embryos can sometimes failed to thaw is the embryo probably wasn't good enough to be frozen before. And that can cause issues with thawing, not just that didn't survive the thaw. At our clinic, we only freeze very high quality embryos. So our thaw rate is extremely good and we have very few embryos not make the thaw. And I would guesstimate that at most clinics, this is also true. The last part that we're going to talk about is a failure of the transfer. And I think this is the part that most people are going to struggle with because it just doesn't make sense. Why have you put an embryo in the uterus? Would it not work? Even better yet. Why have you put an embryo that you have proven is genetically normal and it doesn't work? Even further yet, how is it possible to put a genetically normal embryo into the uterus and even do what's called an ERA, where you test the timing and make sure the timing's perfect? And yet sometimes it doesn't work. One thing that I think most women blame is themselves, and you shouldn't. A lot of women are scared of, and I think it's very fair to be scared of this, That maybe their uterus is the problem. I can assure you, it is extremely, extremely rare for the uterus to be the problem and there not be signs that there's, there's a uterine issue. For example, if your uterus had a hard time building a lining, that would explain something. If your uterus kept filling up with fluid, we would know there's a uterine issue. If there was deformities in the uterus or Unusual patterns when building a lining. That could explain a uterine issue. But honestly, in my entire career, I have seen only a couple people ever with true uterine issues that you could not identify on basic testing. So outside of those other areas of failure, such as not getting eggs, fertilization, not getting blastocysts or having poor quality blastocysts, not getting normal embryos or failure to thaw, I'm going to focus now on when the transfer fails. I break this down into a few categories. The first is when your HCG comes back zero. The second thing I look at is when the HCG comes back low. The third area I look at is when there's normal implantation but then the ECG starts to drop within the first few days. And the last category I look at is when there's completely normal implantation, numbers are rising appropriately, but then there's a the miscarriage. Let's start with the first category. When you get no ACG level that shows up, that is a failed implantation. Now, there are many things that can cause that implantation to fail, such as It could be an abnormal embryo. It could be trauma during the transfer. Even though your doctor does his best to put the embryo back, it is possible that the embryo can get stuck to the catheter, get moved into the cervix. You can have ectopic location of that embryo, or maybe it gets pushed up in a tube and doesn't implant. You can have timing issues where even though you're implanting on the fifth day, your implantation needs that be on the 6th day of progesterone or maybe the 4th day of progesterone now one question is well, why do we pick day 5 what is the reason for that the reason why we put the embryo back on the 5th day of progesterone is because naturally when the embryo falls from the fallopian tube into the uterus that is the proximate timing the proper timing for an embryo to go into the uterus is when it's a blastocyst now How then can there be timing issues? Well, when we talk about timing issues, we're talking about receptivity. Although most people are most receptive on the fifth day of progesterone, there are some women who need more and some women who need less. And that can cause you to not implant. The last thing that can come up is there could be an issue with development. It's important to understand that not every embryo is going to Become a baby. Even normal embryos may not divide normal. And it's hard to understand this because, again, we're talking about it's normal. Why wouldn't it work? But if you think about it, back to our blueprint analogy, if the blueprint is correct, then why would it mess up? Well, the same reason why when someone's building a building, the blueprint can be correct and they can mess up. When you think about these cells are dividing so fast, they're dividing faster than cancer cells. Absolutely, they can mess up. Just like people are born with problems, people get cancers, people have heart attacks. It's not a perfect system. And even when it's normal, sometimes these cells don't divide. And so we put this in your uterus and we say, hey, it's alive, it's normal. But a few days later, it may stop growing. Now... This is one area where I actually find it very helpful when patients, as they say, cheat and check pregnancy tests starting on day five. This helps me a lot because if someone tells me that their HCG strips are completely negative, then I know for sure this was an implantation issue and it's going to fall under those categories. However, if the HCG goes up a little bit and then it goes down, then I know this is An implantation issue, but a little different. Now we know it's not going to be something wrong with the cells not implanting because the only time you can get HCG is if you have implantation. The cells that implant are what make HCG. So what things then cause a low HCG to then drop? Some of these are going to be the same as the last category. So again, an abnormal embryo that starts... And then it gets to the part of the DNA that's abnormal and then starts to fail. Again, this can be developmental. It could be timing. The one thing we know it can't be is it can't be implantation because it did implant. And so although there's not a lot of help between those two, I think it's important for a patient to know the difference of when you have anything positive, it did implant. Now, if the embryo was normal, like in a -A PGTA-tested embryo, then in that situation, the low HCG is not due to an abnormal embryo, but is more likely due to a developmental issue where the cells were dividing and something went wrong or a wrong location, like we talked about during the transfer or trauma, or the third thing is the timing issue, which is where I would probably look next. Now, what if your numbers come back perfect? And then the second number doesn't come back good. And then from that point, it drops. Well, this tells you then it's absolutely an issue after implantation. I find rarely is this an issue with timing because the first number was good. So again, I'm talking about a number that's like 150. Everything looks great. And then the next one goes to 100, the next one lower. At that point, if you did not do PGTA testing, I'm assuming this is an abnormal embryo. If you did do that testing, almost always this is going to be a developmental issue or it's an ectopic location. Usually you can tell if it's an ectopic location because the number slowly goes up and then slowly goes down. But if it's a rapid drop, almost always abnormal embryo or if it's a known normal embryo, a developmental issue where the cells were dividing, something went wrong. The last area is where you have complete normal implantation. The numbers divide perfectly. You come in for the OB scan and there's a miscarriage. This is probably one of the hardest ones because you feel like you're out of the danger zone. Now, again, if you didn't do testing on the embryos, the most likely cause is going to be an abnormal embryo. If you did do testing on the embryos, then in this situation, The most likely cause is going to be one of those developmental issues, again, where the cells are dividing and something goes wrong. Doesn't mean you can't have miscarriages for other reasons, but we're talking about what could cause the embryo to stop growing. So why are all these important? Well, because it's important to look at those details when you have a failed IVF cycle. It's important for the doctor to go through and figure out why did it fail. The thing I would never accept is, let's just try again. Let's just try again is great for IUIs. Let's just try again is perfect when dad messes up at the carnival trying to win his son a new baseball hat. But let's just try again does not work when you're trying to have a kid. It's important to look at these details and then try to determine what's best for you. And so although I don't like people cheating and doing those ACG tests, I always ask anytime anyone that failed, did they do them? Because I can sometimes use that information to figure out a little bit more what happened during those 10 days before the ACG was drawn. I think one of the most amazing things that have occurred now in IVF is that there are so many tools for us to use now that we can usually figure out what's wrong and can almost always get people pregnant. Obviously, this is barring something like someone doesn't make eggs, there are no sperm. but if we can get the details, we can usually make adjustments, and we can usually get you pregnant at some point. The question isn't more if, it's the question of when, and do you have the energy to keep doing it? Until next week, I greatly appreciate everyone who listens. I appreciate the people who send in questions to the email. I appreciate you letting other people know. And all those who like us, please review us. buy um, tunes, review us. It helps a ton. I'll talk to you next week for another episode of Taco Bout Fertility Tuesday.